0: Amen. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you for that prayer, and good morning to all of you. It's certainly good to see you and to be with you this morning. We are actually nearing the end of our study of the Book of Luke. We uh, we have one more week of Luke together before we begin to dive into the Psalms over the summer. Um, but you may have noticed that we've been studying this book since October, and uh, you may have noticed that. There have been a lot of food narratives, what we call food narratives, which, which is to say that Jesus has a tendency to gather people up and commune with them over a meal, and that has happened over and over and over again. And there's, scholars actually call Luke one great big food narrative, that you can trace, uh, you know, stories about food and the presence of it, and Jesus' sharing of it with people throughout the whole book. And what we're looking at this morning is really the climax— of these food narratives, where Jesus, really hours before his betrayal and arrest, a day before his death on the cross, spends his final few moments of peace with his disciples enjoying the Passover dinner with them together. And it's there that he institutes the Lord's Supper, which is the meal we're going to take here together in just a few moments. And before I get into it, let me just mention that some of the church's uh, best debates and most tragic controversies <laughs> have been around this this particular meal. Like, what does it mean? What actually is going on? And the truth is is uh, is that with. With the sacrament of the Lord's Supper and with the sacrament of baptism, there is always going to be a mysterious element that God is always going to be working in and through and among us in ways we won't understand. But there are some wonderful things about the truth of the Lord's Supper that we can grab out of this passage. And that's what we're going to talk about is, uh, is what is Jesus doing as he institutes the Lord's supper among us. And, And really, what is Jesus saying to us over and over and over again as we take this meal that he gives us? So let's look at this together. I'm going to read Luke 22 verses 14 through 23, and then we will feast together on his word, and we will feast together at the table. Hear the word of the Lord. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles were with him, And he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup and likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Father, uh, you have arranged us, your people, together together to sit and hear from your word and your desire that we would know you is evident to us just because you gave us your word and so we pray that um, as we hear from you that you would help us to be present um, that you would nourish us with these words and that you would give us a clearer sense of just who you are and who we are in you. And I pray, Lord, uh, as your servant standing before your people, I pray that you would strengthen my voice, give me an even deeper love for you and for them, and help me to serve them and honor you with these words that I say. Feed us now, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. So a number of years ago, a guy named Cody Dellis Radia, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing his name right, but... Um, there you go. He wrote an article for in The Atlantic that, uh, this was years ago, that uh, looked at what it was like. He was articulating what it was like to cope with the pain of losing his mother when he was in college. And uh, he spoke uh, uh, really beautifully of the profound sense of loss that he had in the aftermath of of her passing. And one of the things he said was that, There was just this deep sense of loneliness that was created, not just because she was gone, but uh, there was loneliness that was created in an isolation between him and his father and his brother that they began to, over time, they just, you know, in their grief, they began to just pull apart and live lives that were kind of around each other. And uh, it was... Into this, that his father came to him and said just weeks before he was going to go to college, uh, go back to return to studying college, his father came to him and said, how about you and I once a day begin to share a meal together? Your mother would have wanted that, is what she said. And he said that even though it was just simple, that those were, that, that those were some of the sweetest moments for him, that the results of them sharing a meal together were incredibly rich, This is a quote, this is what he has to say. It wasn't ideal, of course, the meals we made weren't particularly amazing and we missed the presence of mom, but there was something special about setting aside time to be with my father. It was therapeutic, an excuse to talk, to reflect on the day and on recent events, and our chats about the banal of baseball and television often led to discussions of the serious of politics and death. Of memories and loss. Eating together was a small act and it required very little of us, and yet it was invariably one of the happiest moments of my day. Now, of course, there's very little that's surprising about that to us. But actually, you know, um, it's very well known the effects of, of a, that, a, that a shared meal can have on people. In fact, study after study is being given to us, you know, I, I think I see one but maybe once a week, at least once a month, that are telling us about the value of a shared meal. I still remember years ago when we were waiting on our firstborn uh, to reading a parenting book, which is what we do, and uh, it was... <laughs> It, you know like most parenting books they, they kind of outline the challenges that face you, that you face really really well and it was like every chapter when they told us about you know what you know what we're facing it told us like this author it was like the silver bullet answer that a family meal will help that was what they gave us and in fact in many ways like our holiday traditions might be ordered around the life of the meal and what's going on there is that there is something that is said to us through the sharing of a meal that really can't be said any other way. Like words of life, words of love, and words of commitment, words of joy for each other, are spoken through a meal in a way that can't be expressed in any other way. When we come to this table, we're coming to a meal that speaks to us. But Jesus is actually saying things we need to hear deep into the deepest parts of who we are when we take the bread and the wine together. And the question I simply want to seek to answer with you this morning from the text that, that he has given to us is what, what is Jesus saying to us when we take this meal together? I got three points for you. Uh, The first is that Jesus is telling us about how he feels about us. And the second point will be he is reminding us of what he has given to us. And the third is that he is calling us to something together, okay? So he is uh, reminding us about how he feels about us. Uh, In this meal, in, in this passage, Jesus is giving us great insight as to how he feels about his disciples, Do you see that? It was just the way the story started. It was in verse 15. It begins with Jesus articulating a strong desire for his disciples. Look, it says, he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. The literal translation of that is is emphatic. It's with desire, I have desired. And so you get this sense that he has this strong desire for them, but it's also a strong relational desire for them. And you see that because all of this is coming in the context of a shared meal together. Now, it's easy for us to miss, miss this because, um, for you know, in our world, yeah, we share a meal with people that we, we might share a meal with people we don't like, you know? Like, we might share a meal with people that might be opposed to us. So there are all kinds of different types of people that we have different types of relationships with that we might find ourselves across the table from. But in this world, in the culture uh, that that Jesus is doing this in, a meal indicates relationship. And in some ways, the meal indicates, the sharing of a meal indicates the height of relationship. This is why when you saw Jesus like getting together with all kinds of different people, there were people that were suspicious of Jesus because uh, he was eating with people that they wouldn't want him with because the meal indicates relationship. And so that's what you see here is this relational desire, but then it doesn't stop there. Jesus says this really curious thing in verse 16. He says, I will not eat this meal again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, two things I want you to hear when you look at that passage. The first thing is that Jesus is saying is that this meal, when we come to this table, is a picture of the meal that we will enjoy together when Jesus returns and the kingdom's fully established here on earth. That, that, that We talk about that meal as the messianic banquet is a name that we use for it, or the wedding supper of the lamb. That Whenever we come to this table, it's a picture of that meal that we will enjoy one day. But he's also saying that he will fast from this meal in anticipation of that day. And I don't, just don't know if there's anything sweeter than this. This picture of Jesus... Fasting in eager anticipation of the time when he will gather together, physically present with his people, to enjoy the meal that we are being led to hope for. That Jesus is ex- more excited about, even as excited or more excited about that day as we are. As all of this is given to us as a picture of the deep, unflinching, desire that he has for you, his people. And what I want you to see is that there's only one reason that you come to this table. It's because Jesus wants you there. Because his desire is for you. Now I grew up in a tradition, uh, it was Presbyterian, but I grew up in a tradition that had this moment of silence before the taking of communion, like, we don't do that here, we have a liturgy, but there was always this moment of silence for introspection, you know, contemplation, some of you are nodding your heads, like, you know what I'm talking about, and in that moment, I remember always thinking, am I worthy to come to this table? Like, am I, like, and your your mind flashes to all the reasons that you don't feel worthy of it. Like you're remembering your sins, you're remembering the ways that you think and your actions, the way that they have betrayed something different about what you profess to be true about who Jesus is and who you are in Jesus. And it's when we're thinking, am I worthy of coming to this table that you need to look at what Jesus has given to you? And the truth is, is that he has given us, he is giving us words that remind us of his great sacrifice on the cross on our behalf. And as I talk about what he's given to us, I'm looking at verses 19 and 20. These are the words of institution. We say them every week, right? This is my body, which is given for you. This is my blood, which was shed for you. There's talk about the new covenant. And sometimes I think in church, we can get used to certain words, you know, or or sometimes it feels like maybe we're using a special language that maybe we understand or other people don't. But, uh, But what we're looking at here is that Jesus is speaking to us of the great gift of the sacrifice that he's made to us on our behalf. And I want to talk about this in three different ways. I'm going to talk about the, the history of the sacrifice, the sufficiency of the sacrifice, and then the gift of the sacrifice. This is uh, the, what he has given to us. And I need you to hang with me here as I talk about the history of the sacrifice because uh, there are just so many, in this passage, there are just so many amazing, like, different threads that are coming together right here at this moment. So I'm going to try and unpack this a little bit. But there are two pieces of, of history that are mentioned specifically in this passage. First is that they're celebrating the Lord's Supper on the day of the Passover. And then Jesus mentions the new covenant in verse 20, which we actually read about earlier in the service. So I'm going to go at them one at a time. First, the Passover the dinner scene uh, just of this falls on the celebration of the Passover. Now, this was a significant annual historical observance in the life of the people. And uh, on this day, the city of Jerusalem swelled. I mean, there were just so many people would converge on this city. It's where the temple was. Some estimate maybe 200,000 people or so might come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover together. And it was the day that their entire nation remembered God's delivering them from Egyptian slavery. Okay. You can read about that in, uh, in Exodus. The Passover is instituted in Exodus 12. You should check it out. Their plagues, deliverance. Okay. It's a great story. But the celebration of this meal always involved a lamb first sacrificed at the temple. So the way it would work is you would go to the city and you would purchase a lamb with everybody else. And then you would go and you would wait in line at the temple in order to sacrifice the lamb. Temple operations started at about three o'clock in the afternoon. And they would bring the people in to make these sacrifices in huge, three huge Shifts that would come in. And so you would go with your lamb and you would go to the altar. A priest would meet you there and you would slaughter your own lamb, sacrificing it. Body is broken. And then the priest would catch some of the blood with a bowl and throw it on the altar. Blood spilled. Did you catch that? Body and blood. And so the body being broken and the blood being spilled were their way of remembering, even reenacting God's deliverance of his people from their slavery to the Egyptians. When they sacrificed the lamb, wiped the blood on the doorposts, uh, uh, the doorframe in the 10th plague. So that's the Passover, okay? Here's the new covenant. In verse 20, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood And when Jesus says these words, they are freighted with meaning. You can trace the covenant through the Jewish scriptures, our Old Testament, and you will see that this is the way, through a covenant, that God related to his people. It was how God bound himself to the welfare of his people. It was through a covenant that God promised Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars, right? It was through a covenant that God gave Moses the law for his people. It was through a covenant that that, uh, that God promised David there would always be a descendant of his that would sit on the throne of Israel. It was always through a covenant that mediated God's promises to his people. That was how it happened. And every one of these covenants were stamped, so to speak, or inaugurated with a sacrifice. There's always a sacrifice involved with this. It was one of the ways that it was like a, uh, you can trust this promise. And in Jeremiah, the same passage that we read earlier in the service, God spoke through the prophet Jeremiah to promise a new covenant. And how does he describe it? It describes it as a covenant that's not like the ones in the past that he made with his people, the covenant that they broke, he says. This new covenant is an unbreakable, final covenant, a final act that ushers in perfect communion with God and each other, the, the thing that we're all longing for. Look at, look at the way it's described. It's right there in Jeremiah 31. God tells us that this new covenant will be a time when he will write his law on our hearts. This is a sweet picture. He tells us that there, it, there will no longer be a time where neighbors need to teach each other to know the Lord because they will all know me, He says. And then in verse 34, he says, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Did you hear that? He said, no more. This is the promise. This is the promise of God that our whole lives our whole faith is built on. That when Jesus died on the cross, when he offers himself as the body and blood sacrifice to usher in the new covenant, the forgiveness of sins, and God not remembering our iniquity anymore, is promised in that moment. And that when Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross, it was enough. It was sufficient. And just as the Passover celebrated God's delivering of his people from Egypt, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is the promise that delivers us from the slavery of our sin. Hebrews 10 tells us, that every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away our sins. But when Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. you're wondering about whether you belong on this table. You do, because his sacrifice was sufficient for you. This is why we call his sacrifice a gift. We call it a gift because Jesus calls it a gift. Look at the way he talks about it. He says, this is my body which is given for you. This is my blood which was spilled for you. It's this wonderful picture of the finality of a sacrifice that is offered on your behalf and it is just freely given for you. A gift is received. You can't earn a gift. If you needed to earn this gift, if you needed to earn this sacrifice on your behalf, then we call that a salary, right? You fought for it and you worked for it, but this is given freely to you. It's a picture of what Jesus did for you that reminds you of the desire. And every time we come to this table and we hear those words of institution spoken, Jesus is speaking to us again and again, repeatedly reminding us of just what he has given to us. And as he reminds us of what he has given to us, he gives us a picture of something that he is calling us to there's a heartbreaking element to this whole story did you catch it at the end well the disciples don't know but Jesus is fully aware of is that there's this conspiracy against Jesus at play and one of his own disciples is right there at the heart of it when we were reading it you probably saw the story shift like what's what's going on there like why are we ending right here but this is what he's referencing in verse 21 and 22, and he says, Woe to that man who sits at the table with him and then betrays the Son of God. Listen, the disciples would have been absolutely shocked to hear this. And of course, they began to question each other, saying, Who is it? Because while they all looked the same on the outside, there was a dark movement inside Judas's heart that caused him to trade his loyalty to Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And this is so terrible. This is so desperately awful. It is so sad because it violates everything that Jesus was up to as he establishes this meal with his people. Because when we come to the table, somehow, he is deepening our union with him that he is actually nourishing our faith and strengthening our connection with him. And the Holy, listen, the Holy Spirit is at work when we take communion together. And, and, uh, and the, the Shorter Catechism puts it well. It says it is nourishing our faith for our growth in grace. That there is a unity with Christ that is nourished whenever we take the bread and drink the wine together. And just as he's uh, unifying us with himself, he is also un- building a unity between each other. That God calls us to himself and he calls us together. And this is, this is uh, testified by when we take the bread and drink the wine together. It's this confession that we're all making at the same time that we all stand in need of the same grace. That we all have the same Saviour. That we are all desperate without what Jesus did on our behalf. That we all stand together on the same level playing field before God. That He is the one who cares for us and we stand in need of Him. Listen, I'm not a I'm not an old pastor. Um but I, I am listening to some older pastors. And they are telling me that they have never seen a time in the life of the church where it seems like the enemy is at work pulling God's people away from each other. And so when we come together, when we come together to feast around the Lord's table, what we're saying is that no matter our differences... No matter our perspectives, no matter how, like, how different our lifestyles are, our vacations look, no matter, wh- no matter where we are coming from, no matter our ideological perspectives or even our theological perspectives, when we come to this table, God is creating a unity and he's calling us to a unity with each other. Let me just give you one more thing and then I'll close. You know, as this night wore on, just an hour or two is when when Jesus would be betrayed. And that night yielded to the darkness of the next day, the crucifixion. And one by one, we see these same disciples abandon Jesus. That moments after he serves them the Lord's Supper, they begin to scatter. So much so that there's really only a remnant of a few faithful disciples left sitting at the foot of the cross when, as Jesus passes away on, on, in the crucifixion. But listen, here's the amazing thing about who Jesus is. Because when he triumphs over death, he resurrects, and he walks around in his glorious body, what do we see him doing? We see him one at a time begin to go pursue and find his disciples again. And he finds them in all kinds of places. He finds them fishing. He finds them walking on the road. He finds them hiding out in fear in a room. And he comes to them. And Luke 24 ends with Jesus standing in a room with his disciples. He pulled them together again. And you know what he says? Does anyone have anything to eat? Listen, this meal proclaims to us that Jesus is relentlessly pursuing his disciples and drawing them back into fellowship with him and each other. And Jesus speaks to us through this meal. He is reminding us about how he feels about us. He is reminding us of what he's given to us. And he is calling us to something important over and over and over again as we celebrate this meal. Amen. Let me pray. Father, what a thing, (laughs) Jesus, what a thing that you have given to us, that your grace is made so evident over and over and over again by this meal that we enjoy, that you are fasting from. And so, Lord, we anticipate that day, we long for that day, but until then, I pray that you would continue to nourish us with your word and with your meal. I pray these things in the name of our Savior, our older brother, the one who serves his disciples, Jesus Christ, amen.